Man, that video jazzes me up every time. Right? I hope you too. I mean, seeing all these inspirational leaders talk about these ways that we overcome divides, that we unify fractured people, uh, it, it's, it makes me want to do the same thing. It makes me want to do, you know, the title of this week's worship, which is uh, Courageous Things. But as I think about this whole concept of doing courageous things, it begs the question, what courageous things should we be doing? Which, which are the acts that we should be engaging in to bridge divides? Uh, and, and so it, it sparks the question then, so what should an ideal, courageous, godly life look like? Uh, what should we be doing? What's the picture uh, of, of how we live up to this standard and, and that we live up to this ideal of doing courageous things? I mean, maybe it, maybe it just looks like this. Maybe it's the people around us and it's, it's living this life where, where you know, you've, you've lived by God's commandments and so you found your, your perfect soulmate and, and, you, and you look at these people and like, oh, they look so happy and, and look at their kids. Their kids look so well-adjusted and normal. You know, they probably wouldn't lick the toilets, you know, for no reason at all. Like, 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 oh, how great. You know, I bet their bank account is, is, an, is enough money every month that they don't have any debt or issues like that. And, uh, and I bet, you know, if they wanted to run a faith-based ad, you know, Google would happily run it. Like, like, there's nothing wrong in this family's life, right? But maybe this isn't the ideal godly, courageous life. Maybe this is just the ideal West County life. Maybe we need to be more courageous than that, right? Maybe we need to be missionaries. Right? Maybe that's what the courageous life looks like. And if we're truly going to live up to God's ideals and live a life that honors him, then, then we should sell everything we have. We should, we should go to some developing country and, and pitch in there. We should, we should bring the gospel all around the world. And, uh, and, and that would be the ideal life. That's the courageous act that God is calling us to or maybe that's not even courageous enough. I don't know if you know this, but for the first 300 years, you know what the ideal of a godly, courageous life was? If somebody killed you for your faith in God. You know, people are asking the question for the first 300 years, you know, oh, do I have a godly life? People say, well, have you been murdered yet? Well, keep trying. Maybe one day you'll live the ideal of the courageous life, right? But, but these are the pictures, right? This, and, and it just begs this question, are we chickening out? Are we living this courageous ideal, godly life, and, and I worry constantly myself that I'm not. And honestly, even looking at these pictures and these ideas, they stress me out. They don't inspire me. They, they, they tire me more than anything else. And I don't know about you, but because but if you don't have this, well, then life's not great, right? If you haven't met your ideal soulmate and you're living life alone, well, then what does that mean? Like, are you, have you fallen short of God's ideal? Were you not living courageously enough? Or, or what if you did get married and you found out that it wasn't your soulmate and now, now you got a whole new set of problems? And you know, what if I haven't sold everything and given to the poor? Am I shirking my responsibilities? Am I, am I settling for less than God's courageous vision for my life? And, and that's defeating and, and tiring frankly, you guys already are braver than I am because if I weren't the one preaching this morning and I had seen that the title of the week was Do Courageous Things and the weather was as nice as it is, I would not be here right now. This would be one of those ones where you'd roll over in the alarm clock and say, I think we can skip this week. We'll tune in next time. I, I don't always want to do courageous things because part of the problem is if, if this is the ideal picture, if I've got something in my head, then anything that keeps me from that ideal picture is, is a disruption, is a negative, make, makes me feel worse. 
about my life. And I start to actually get resentful, right? Because if, then if I don't have all of these ideal things, if, if, if stuff comes up, challenges and obstacles, then I, then I hate them. Uh, because they just remind me that I'm not living what I should be living or, or it's the thing that's keeping me from having this life that I'd like to have. Uh, and, and I start to just go into this spiral of negativity and, and despondency and despair that, that I, I, I can never live up to this courageous ideal. And, and look at all these things that are keeping me from it, all these things in life that just pile on and hold me back. And I get in that space a lot. And something that's helped me was I recently heard something from motivational speaker and hip-hop artist uh, Will Smith. Uh, And he shared uh, this video that that was really encouraging to me just as I get in that little death spiral of of just feeling overwhelmed by all the courageous stuff I'm supposed to be doing and all the the problems and hardships and sufferings in this world that keep me from it. Uh, Heads up, he does use the word damn a couple times in this video, but I'm sure you'll be okay with that because you'll recognize his heartfelt sincerity of what he's trying to talk about. So check out what Will Smith has to say. I was just uh, having a debate with a friend of mine and we got stuck on the difference between fault and responsibility. She kept talking about how something was somebody's fault, somebody's fault. And I was like, it really, it don't matter whose fault it is that something is broken if it's your responsibility to fix it. For example, it's, it's not somebody's fault if their father was an abusive alcoholic. But it's for damn sure their responsibility to figure out how they're going to deal with those traumas and try to make a life out of it. It's not your fault if your partner cheated and ruined your marriage, but it is for damn sure your responsibility to figure out how to take that pain and how to overcome that and build a happy life for yourself. Fault and responsibility do not go together. It sucks, but they don't. When something is somebody's fault, we want them to suffer. We want them punished. We want them to, to pay. We want it to be their responsibility to fix it. But that's, that's not how it works, especially when it's your heart. Your heart, your life, your happiness is your responsibility and your responsibility alone. As long as we're pointing the finger and, and, and stuck in whose fault something is, We're jammed and trapped into victim mode. When you're in victim mode, you are stuck in suffering. The road to power is in taking responsibility. Your heart, your life, your happiness is your responsibility and your responsibility alone. So those are pretty powerful words. Yeah. And if you were thinking, all I really need this Sunday morning is some inspirational wisdom from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, then check. You are welcome. But I think, as we, as we even just saw, I think we recognize the wisdom in what Will Smith is saying. It's definitely easier said than done. It's a hard thing to live out. But I think we all resonate with this idea that it's for us to take responsibility in our own lives and not worry about faulting or blaming those who have caused the hardships and the consequences in our own life. The question to me then goes, but what about the people around us and their lives are not great? And their lives are hard and their lives are less than ours. What responsibility do we have in that situation to not blame or focus on fault, but to take responsibility to fix a life for someone else? 
You see, one of the divides that we have in our society right now is this divide between the haves and the have-nots, you know, the makers and the takers, and, and this idea that there is a whole segment of our population that isn't doing so well, you know, whether it's financially or socially or, or career and vocation-wise, that they're struggling. And, and the question becomes, well, well, what responsibility do we as God followers have to fix that? I I get, it's obvious, it's clear that I have responsibility to fix my own life, but what responsibility do I have to fix the lives of others when they've made poor choices, when they're living uh, in situations that are of their own making? Uh, Truly, what am I supposed to do? What obligation should rest on my shoulders to take responsibility for someone else's life? And that's where I think today's story from the Bible comes in so important. As we continue through Divided We Fall and we do courageous things, we're looking at Mark 6. Uh, You can turn to it in your Bibles, uh, get it up on your phone or a smart tablet. Um, But just to set the stage... So at this point, Jesus' ministry has gone like gangbusters. He's famous, he's popular, he's been doing miracles, everybody's heard about him, uh, and he's recently just sent uh, some of his closest disciples out and kind of said, you know, all right, go kind of do a, uh, your own satellite ministry and just go do things, and, and he gave them power, and, and they were doing miracles and all this stuff, and the disciples are now doing these amazing things, all right? And then this story picks up because they've all regrouped, you know, so Jesus and the disciples are getting back together for the first time uh, since he sent them out, and this is what happens. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there to the landing spot on the shore ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And and so this is huge. I want want to point out a couple of things here to this point in the story. Uh, The first is, and uh, Andy Johnson, one of our seminary students that works here at the church, uh, pointed this out, that they've already been doing courageous things. They've already been living this ideal godly lifestyle. You know, they left their homes, they left their jobs, they've been following Jesus. And then not only that, they've been casting out demons. They've been healing people who are sick. Like they've already been doing all these brave, courageous things. And now Jesus is like, oh yeah, but now you know what? I need you to feed 5,000 people. And he asks them like it's a normal thing. Like he's like, hey, you know, you pass the butter. Like, yeah, you feed this crowd of over 5,000 people. Uh, and, And you just think, what is going on? Like, haven't they already done enough? Haven't they already sacrificed and striven and done brave things? And now here's Jesus saying, well, you know, now you need to feed these people. So there's already uh, the same dynamic that I struggle with. We're just feeling like, like what more do I need to do? Like, like how, how far do I have to go before it's finally going to be good enough and be courageous enough for Jesus? But the second thing to point out is that it is not in any way the disciples' fault that there is a crowd of people with not enough food to eat. 
They didn't ask them to follow them to the shore. They were trying to leave. They were trying to get some space, take a rest, have some food themselves. Uh, They didn't ask these people to come. It wasn't their fault that the people didn't plan ahead and say, well, hey, we're going to go listen to Jesus. We should probably pack a lunch. Uh, And it's not the disciples' fault. And yet Jesus, with that one word, very clearly makes it their responsibility. Your fault or not, disciples, I need you to feed these people. So let's see what happens. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Mark chapter 6. And that's just the men. When you factor in women and children, we know it's significantly more even than that. Thousands of people fed in a miraculous way. Amazing story. Uh, definitely one of the highlights when people think about Jesus. Like this, this idea that he fed the crowds with just this tiny amount of food is, is high up there on the list of miracles. But the question remains, what exactly is the courageous act? If you look at disciples, they didn't really do anything courageous. You know, in fact, they told Jesus to send the people away. Uh, and even after he put the responsibility on them to feed the people, they still didn't really like, take ownership of that decision. You know, he, just, you know, he had to walk them through step by step and say, all right, all right, fine. Ask what we've got. Start distributing. But he did all the work. He broke the bread and prayed the prayer. He did the miraculous thing. You know, was it really a courageous act on the part of the disciples? Uh, if anything, it was a courageous act on the part of the kid who had the five loaves. You know, the disciples say, hey, you got any food? And he gave it to them. Like the one guy who packed lunch and he, and he gave it away. But the one thing that sticks out to me is not necessarily that the disciples themselves did a courageous act, but it's, it's so clearly that they, that they were willing to put themselves in an uncomfortable position. Uh, and see, and this is what Francis Chan, he kind of summarizes this story and the principle behind it this way. Francis Chan in, in the book Crazy Love says, but God doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. And I think these are powerful and true words. That, that the, the picture here is uncomfortability uh, and, and being in a situation where we might fail, where, where this thing could blow up in our faces, but we're going to put ourselves in that position because we're going to trust Jesus to come through. But that describes well, I think, this idea of being uncomfortable and taking responsibility for for things that are larger than us. But it still doesn't get to the why. And I don't know about you, but if I don't have a compelling reason to put myself in an uncomfortable situation, I won't do it. And I'll give you an example. Like, here's a compelling thing. When I'm in a crowded venue, like if I'm at a church or a movie theater or, you know, or going to see a musical or something, uh, and I have to go to the bathroom and I'm in the middle of the row... I won't go. And that gets real uncomfortable after a while. 
But that's still less uncomfortable than the fear in my head. I hate so much this idea that I would have to walk past people in the row to get to the aisle. That feels more uncomfortable to me than anything else. Because they don't make those very deep, right? And like that person over there, they came here to see Hamilton, not to see my butt in their face because I had to make. And then on the way back, because you have to come back in, right? And, and if my bladder distress is not enough of a reason to be uncomfortable, what would motivate me to put myself in these kinds of situations? Why would I do it? Honestly, I wouldn't unless the reason was so compelling. And I think that we have been given a lot of reasons to live these courageous lives or to do uncomfortable things that are not actually compelling enough to do them. See, I I do think courageous acts and good deeds matter, but if we have the wrong reasons behind them, then we just won't do it. I certainly won't because I've got to have a good enough reason to get uncomfortable. So let me first kind of blow up four wrong reasons that I I think are why why we avoid doing courageous acts or or, or why we might try to do them for the wrong reasons. Uh, And so the first one is this, this belief that maybe the reason why is that we should do good deeds because they contribute to my being saved. And And I know that this is a tempting one because uh, Barna Group is a Christian survey company uh, and they have asked, they do surveys all around on all sorts of topics and for decades they have asked every year Christians why they're going to heaven. And every year consistently, it's actually been getting a little bit worse, about half of Christians, people who say they love God, they read the Bible, they believe everything you're supposed to believe, about half of them think that their good deeds actually contribute to being saved. That, that, it, that the reason we go to heaven is because we're a good person and we do good things. Uh, and so I don't know where you are if this is a reason for you, but I do know statistically about half of Christians in this country think this is a thing. And for now, I'm going to unpack it more later. This is wrong. This is not a reason. If we're trying to do this, then we will will never feel certain of heaven because no good deed would ever be enough to actually make us think we deserve it. So cross that one off. Next one. The flip side is then people say, well, all right, well, if good deeds don't matter for going to heaven or being saved, well, then you know what? Then we shouldn't even talk about good deeds. Uh, we should never command good deeds because if you did command them, that might lead into this wrong reason here. If you said you should do it, it might be because you might need to do it to, to be saved. And I don't know about you, but again, this is my faith tradition growing up. This is exactly what church was like for me all my growing up years, that the expectation was it was a pastor's job each and every week to say three things in a sermon. And those three things were, you're terrible. For some reason, God loves you anyway. And now you're forgiven. Have a great day. And if a pastor said anything more than that, anything beyond that, then he was being unfaithful to God's true word. Because if you said anything more than that, like, and hey, you should maybe go forgive your neighbor once in a while. Well, now you're, you're, you're putting people back into this whole good deeds contribute to being saved. And, and, and we want to be so careful to stay away from there that we're not even going to talk about it. No good deeds should be talked about or commanded or, or encouraged at all. That's a wrong way to understand good deeds. Here's where I've ultimately landed, and this is probably where I and my family struggle the most. I'd say this is the wrong reason that we sit in so much of our lives. See, we get this idea. All right, yep, fine. God loves me unconditionally. I heard it enough times in Sunday school. I get it. Fine. But he sure likes me a little better when I do good deeds in his name. Or the flip side of this, which is God likes me a little less when I don't do the courageous things he's called me to do. Uh, And and me personally, in in my life, in the lives of my family, I've seen over and over again how much shame 
uh, and despair this belief has caused for so many people. Because it's like this idea that, all right, fine, God loved me even when I was a mess, but I sure better start trying to be less of a mess now or he's not going to keep liking me so much. And, and, and this is it's so toxic and it leads just to so much um, maybe right behavior, but for the wrong reasons, which ends up being the wrong behavior. And, and then the last one is this idea that then, well, you know what? Fine. So because life's screwed up, because things are hard, my good deeds wouldn't make enough of a difference in a broken world anyway. And, and I hear this over and over again, that, you know what? Hey, the world's always sinful. It's always going to be messed up. There's always going to be problems. And why even try to fix it? It's not going to be fixed until Jesus comes back and we get heaven and eternal life anyway. So why waste any time? I mean, Jesus himself even said that. If any of you saw that uh, Jesus Christ Superstar special that was on a couple of weeks ago, you know, they even quote this line from Jesus where he said, oh, you know, the, you'll always have the poor with you. And, and so we think about that and say, all right, well, if they're always going to be poor people, then, then we have no responsibility or burden to fix it for them because we're not, there's always going to be poor people. We can't fix it. Uh, so we might as well not even try. And what that reflects to me is, is uh, what Stephen Covey in the seven habits of highly effective people, he calls this the scarcity mentality, uh, which is this idea that there's not enough that I could do to fix something. And so I just won't do it at all. Or, or, or it would cost me so much that it wouldn't be worth it. Or, or the worst thing is that the scarcity mentality leads to this win-lose mindset. This idea that there's only so much to go around. And if I want to win, if I want to have enough for myself, for my family, uh, to have the comforts that I need to get through life, but then someone else isn't going to have enough. And it just has to be that way. Because if I tried to help them out, then I might lose something myself. And the only way to beat a scarcity mentality is to embrace an abundance mentality. And, uh, and that's a hard thing to do. Uh, we actually did a whole series on it last year. And so if you remember the gratitude effect uh, from last year, and if you don't, I encourage you to check it out. It's on our website. You can watch all four of those series. Um, but the gratitude effect is this amazing way to combat the scarcity mindset and to get back into an abundance mentality. But, but ultimately, all of these are wrong things. And I'm not, not going to unpack the gratitude effect now, but I am going to unpack the one true thing. Like, if these are wrong, here's the true thing that needs to matter the most and needs to dictate everything else that we understand and think and feel and do. And this is it, which is that there was only one good deed that could bridge the gap between humanity and God. There was only one courageous act in all of history that's made any difference as far as what our broken condition is and what God wants for our life. And that is the courageous act of Jesus himself willingly dying on a cross to bridge that divide and reconcile God and man. This is the only good deed that matters for that. Nothing we do has any effect in the supernatural, heavenly, divine realm. We can't be good enough. We can't fix things enough. We can't make God like us a little better, a little less. It just, it doesn't work. The only thing that works for any of those things is the courageous act of Christ himself on the cross. And so let's look at that and let's see why would he do such a thing? Uh, and, And we actually get the answer to that in our story from today. I don't know if you caught it, but when he saw that crowd, right? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't blame them for not packing a lunch. He didn't uh, fault them because they didn't think ahead or because they're bothering him when he was just trying to get a little bit of of a break. Instead, he, he felt compassion and that spurred him to action. 
And that wasn't the only time that Jesus did such a thing in his ministry. At the very end of his life, when he's approaching uh, the, the final moment, uh, this is what happens. When, when they, the Jews and religious leaders and, and uh, the Romans, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And this is key. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In this moment where fault and blame are as clear as they can be, they're literally in the middle of killing him. He chooses to say, I'm not going to blame you for this. I'm not going to hold you uh, to your responsibility or account or fault for this. I'm going to take responsibility. And in responsibility, he says, Father, forgive them. And in responsibility, he does this courageous act that saved all mankind, saved you, saved me. And why did he do it? He did it because of compassion. Compassion is what drove the one courageous act that can save us. And so that then is what leads into us. So go back to this. Yep, next. And his compassion act saves us for the next life, which then spurs us out of that same compassion. Our courageous acts help our neighbors in this life. See, we do good deeds, we do courageous things, not because God needs them, but because the people around us need them. I don't need to be a good father because God wants me to be a good father. It's because my kids need me to be. Wives don't need to be good wives because it makes God like them more. It's because their husbands need them to be good wives. And we don't uh, need to do courageous acts and reach out and try and help those whose lives are harder and rougher uh, and, and poorer than ours because the pastor told you to or because it's what good religious folk are supposed to do. We do it because compassion that drove Christ to the cross is the same compassion that helps us spot the need in our neighbor's life. Compassion is the only motivator that can spur any courageous deed that's worth anything because compassion is the only thing that can short-circuit this cycle of fault and blame. Compassion is the only thing that can get us out of our own cycle of guilt and shame that I should be doing something more courageous than I am and I'm not living up to what I'm supposed to be doing. Compassion cuts through all that junk. Compassion is the one thing that can help us do courageous acts that actually make a difference. And just to give you an example, you know, my wife and I, we recently had one of those day-long fights. So you know the one I'm talking about, right? Where, where something goes wrong in the morning, uh, and so then you kind of like, you know, go to your separate corners and you get through the day, and then you come together to try and patch it up, but then one of you says something that makes it worse, and so you go off again, and, and you just get more and more mad. And, uh, and, and, and we were in that kind of situation, you know, and, and after 12 hours of my being right... We came together at the end of the day, and, and, and it's, it's bedtime, and, and, and we've just, it's, been, it's been so long. And she just says to me, Tug, I'm just hurting right now. And she's still wrong. <laughs> but that's the thing that flips the switch and, and triggers the compassion in me that says, it doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong. It doesn't matter whose fault this particular fight is, what matters is that there's someone in front of me who's hurting and I have a responsibility to do something about that. And maybe it means uh, giving up or capitulating when I still feel like I'm right, but, but the compassion is the one thing that can motivate me to do that. 
And I think it's the same when we look at the, the economic divides in our country right now. Like it's so easy to talk about makers and takers and, and, and to blame bad choices on, on the people who are less privileged than we are and say, well, then they shouldn't have gotten pregnant when they were in high school. Well, you know what? Well, then they shouldn't have done drugs. And, and, and if we're going to help them, like even if we help them, it needs to come with this obligation or responsibility. Like we need to drug test everybody because that's how we make sure they take fault and blame and, and responsibility for their actions. You see, but, but compassion is the one thing that can cut through that mentality. See, compassion says maybe you made a lot of bad choices, but if I've got responsibility to fix it and if I actually care about your needs, I'm not going to worry about that for the sake of finding a way to make your life better. Uh, and in fact, there's a Bible verse that speaks to this. And, and I'll tell you, it's a Bible verse that has troubled me for 20 years, but it's also um, changed and influenced my thinking for 20 years. Uh, and so I, I, I know it's more complicated than this, and this is just kind of one bullet point soundbite, but, but bear with me. Listen to what Proverbs 31 has to say. Proverbs 31, uh, which many of us know because it's the godly wife chapter, has this other part that we don't necessarily know as much. It says this, let beer be for those who are perishing, wine for those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. You know, when I'm walking down a city street and you, and you see the panhandler, the, the, you know, the person with the sign, and, and I've always heard, you know, like, like you know, don't give them money because they're, they're probably going to spend it on booze. You know, that's why I don't do that. And, and I'm like, well, maybe, but, but maybe that's biblical if they spend it on booze. Maybe, maybe that's actually okay. And, and I know that it's not necessarily like this simple fix, but, but to me, the, where I finally have come to a place with this verse is that, that what this seems to be saying, because this passage is, is speaking to a king, a leader, he's a ruler in his society, someone who's privileged and has a good life, uh, and, and it's saying to him, maybe compassion needs to be the driving force. Maybe rather than blaming the poverty and the misery on their bad choices or, or telling them that they should take responsibility for their actions, maybe we have a responsibility through compassion to just go ahead and do anything we can to make their suffering and their hardship less. And it doesn't look like necessarily this traditional, you know, help them, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but it does just say, hey, maybe they just need something. But, but whatever it is, it's compassion that drives that. And the best example uh, for me just to, to kind of close this out is, is some of you may have heard of Desmond Doss. Uh, he was in the middle of the 20th century. He was a Seventh-day Adventist, took his faith very seriously, very devout believer. And, uh, and because of his Christian beliefs, he had a strong principled conviction on nonviolence, that you can't hurt somebody, you can't kill somebody, no matter what. Uh, and by the way, if you were not here last week, Dion Garrett talked about resisting stances, and, and man, that was a tough but powerful message for me, really shifting my paradigm, and I am still chewing on it to this day. Uh, but Desmond Doss, he lived this out. He lived out all the principles of bridging divides uh, and, and fighting for unity. But, but even that resisting stances principle, you see it in Desmond Doss, because you see he had a principled conviction. No violence, can't do it. And if he had fallen into a stance on that, then that would have looked like, you know, and anyone who, who disagrees with me uh, is evil or is wrong. Uh, and, and that leads to protests and picketing uh, and telling anyone that participates in the army or in the war uh, that, that you're a bad person because I have a stance. Instead, what Desmond Doss did with his principle of conviction is he actually enlisted in the army. And he enlisted and then, and then he said to his commanders, hey, just so you know, I refuse to kill anybody. <laughs> And the army said, well, I guess we'll make you a medic then. (laughs) 
And so they did. They put him in the medic corps, and he served in the Philippines and Japan, and, and specifically he served at the Battle of Okinawa, which was a bloody battle with lots of casualties on both sides. Uh, and after the battle, there were lots of, of wounded and hurting and suffering men, but the problem was it was on a place called Hacksaw Ridge. There was no way to access the people that were hurting and dying on the field because this ridge made it impassable. The only passable way was cut off by, by the uh, enemy infantry and, and, and artillery. There was no way to get them down other than a sheer cliff of Hacksaw Ridge. And this is what Desmond Doss did.
He saved 75 men that night. And nobody ordered him to do it. There wasn't some ideal picture of a soldier's life that he was trying to live up to. In fact, he'd rejected that. He didn't blame them for not having the power of his own convictions against anti-violence. He just knew that people were hurting and dying, and he had compassion. And I confess with you, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm as honest with you guys as I am, because I don't want you to think there's some ideal life that I'm living that you're not. Uh, but, but I know that I myself fall into this trap that I spend so much time in my headspace worrying about what this ideal, godly, courageous life should look like and, and trying to see whether I live up or measure up. But, but that's not what actually drives courageous action. It, it, it's compassion that says, anything I can do because I care so strongly for your suffering, I'll just do it without thinking. And so I'm trying to spend less time here and I'm trying to spend more time here in my heart with letting the why drive my choices. Or or maybe it's here. Because I firmly believe that if we let the why of compassion drive our choices we're going to end up in places we never would have predicted. We're going to come up with solutions that would never have been thought of or understood. And, and courageous deeds are going to come naturally as we do the only thing that made sense in the moment because we did what compassion drove us to do. That's what I'm trying to do with my life. That's what I hope God's compassion for your life helps spur you to do for yourself as well. Please pray with me. Lord God, I ask right now that the truth of your compassion for each and every man, woman, and child in this place would sink into our hearts, that it would become a reality, not just a nice idea or an abstract concept, but that your compassion for us would be so meaningful that it would break away all guilt, all shame, all standards of other people that we're trying to live up to, all responsibility taking out of obligation. And Lord, I trust that we who take your compassion for real will also then pour it out in amazing ways. And so Lord, I ask that the compassion of the people in this place would be overflowing from their hearts would reach out into the lives of all those around us, people who have earned their own suffering, people who have made their own mistakes, uh, and yet our compassion for them would help us to do the courageous thing. And Lord, I hold you accountable to your word and your promise that you have said that when we act out of your love and grace and mercy and compassion, that you show up in a mighty way, not just to feed a crowd of 5,000 and more, but right here and now in the lives of all of us here and in the lives of those around us that we can make a difference for. So Lord, do this powerful thing. Continue this powerful thing that you have already done in our lives and to the lives of those who need it. Amen.